Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part two of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Last week, we went over the early life of Robert William Picton. If you haven't heard last week's episode, you might want to skip back. We covered a lot. Again, I'll be referencing a book on the Picton case titled On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women, written by the talented Stevie Cameron, for much of the history covered in this episode. You can find Cameron's book on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It details absolutely every aspect of this case. When we left off, the year was 1967, and 14-year-old Timothy Barrett had been senselessly killed and his death covered up by the Picton family. Even after the death of the teenage boy, life on the Picton farm went on, business as usual. By the early 70s, the roles at the farm were pretty well established. Willie's brother Dave Picton mainly worked construction and demolition, while Willie, at the urging of his mother Louise, was working as a meat cutter apprentice with a local butcher and helping her to run the farm. Around this time, Willie would often butcher around two dozen animals a day. Louise was still running the farm as she always had, barking, or shall we say screeching orders in that notorious high-pitched voice. But Leonard Picton, who was well into his 80s at this point, was senile and couldn't work. It was up to Louise, Willie, and Dave, as well as many farmhands, to keep the farm going. Willie was socially awkward and didn't have much time for women or friends or pretty much anything other than the farm, at least in real life. But that wasn't true of Dave. Somehow, Dave Picton had a penchant for bringing the ladies in. In 1973, Dave's girlfriend Sandy moved into the farmhouse at 953 Dominion Avenue when she was just 17 years old. Dave was 22 at the time. Sandy was beautiful with piercing blue eyes and long blonde hair. She was kind and everyone loved her. But no one, and I do mean no one, knew what she saw in Dave Picton. Though Sandy was in a relationship with Dave, Willie was infatuated with her. He worshipped the ground she walked on, even asking her to marry him and not his bully of a brother. Sandy kindly rejected the offer. In 1974, Sandy gave birth to a daughter and only a year and a half later, a son. Even with two young children to care for, she was expected to work on the farm from sun up to sundown. There was so much work to do. In fact, extra farmhands actually lived there too, sometimes up to six or seven, including two older men who managed the barns. And you might think that it would have been crowded there on the Picton farm, but actually, the farmhouse was pretty large. 
it was two stories with a full basement. Six bedrooms in all, plus the basement, where the farmhands typically slept. As we know, it was a literal shit show on the inside with pig, cow, dog, and chicken feces all over the place. But hey, at least there was enough space. In 1974, Dave Picton saw another opportunity to make some money, and he opened yet another business with his girlfriend Sandy and a few of her family members. It was a topsoil business in which Dave sold soil from the farm to local gardeners, farmers, and to be used on construction sites. They named this new venture DNS Bulldozing, and it, in fact, appears to remain open to this day. There was also a horse boarding operation running at the Picton Farm. Locals would board their animals there for a price. This gave Willie an idea. He wanted to begin breeding horses. His first success was a Palomino colt he named Goldie. It was around this same time that Willie Picton started acquiring female pen pals that he would not only write, he would send audio tape journals to about his life. It seemed since he had little success with women in person, he stayed in frequent contact with multiple pen pals because he could tell them whatever he wanted and they couldn't smell his stench. They might actually give him the time of day. Think of it as a 1970s online dating website, only it was snail mail and took a whole lot more effort. But maybe that added to the excitement of it all, waiting for that letter or package in the mail. One of those pen pals was a woman named Connie. She was American and lived in Pontiac, Michigan. Their relationship developed to the point that Willie was going to actually leave the farm and travel to Michigan to meet her, something he had never done before. His brother Dave and a handful of friends realized how monumental this was for Willie, so they threw a huge party where Willie got sloppy drunk a feeling he didn't like because that would be the first and last time he'd ever drink to that extent again. He hopped on a bus and began a journey to and through the Midwest that would last six weeks, stopping off on his way to Michigan to see all that America had to offer. He made it to Connie, and things must have went well because Willie would later profess that he and Connie were engaged to be married although that wedding would never happen because Willie couldn't just give up his life there on the family farm. Picton stated, I was engaged. She was the love of my life, but she couldn't leave her job. I couldn't leave my job. I couldn't leave the farm. Their relationship was soon over not long after Willie returned home from his trip, but that didn't stop Willie from his hobby of female pen pals. He had written to another by the name of Victoria, detailing his trip out to Michigan, actually claiming that he had been approached and offered a modeling gig for $40 an hour, but he turned them down. And if you believe that story, congratulations, you're the only one. He also detailed how unsafe he felt Chicago was, stating he had to be careful about all the quote, black people he saw further stating you can't be out at nighttime or anything. Disgusting, that is all. He went on to express his hatred of the American obsession with George Washington and cherry pie. And I just have to say, 
on behalf of America, we don't want your stank, racist, murdering, George Washington hating ass in our country anyway, Willie. Anyhow, things were about to go from bad to worse on the Picton farm. Not too long after Willie returned from his trip, he quit his job as a meat-cutting apprentice when he was just six months shy of obtaining his license. Six and a half years of work thrown completely out the door. This would be something Willie would later regret. He needed a pay-in job, so he went to work driving for British Columbia Hydro. In 1977, Willie's father, Leonard Picton, was diagnosed with cancer. He declined rapidly, and on January 1, 1978, he was dead. Not too long after Leonard's death, Sandy decided she had enough of Dave's bullshit, and she packed up their two children and left. Dave was hashtag unbothered by the death of his father and his longtime love leaving, and it wasn't too long before he had his sights on yet another woman. But Sandy leaving? It devastated Willie. Tragedy struck again not too long after Sandy left, when barns on the farm where the pigs were kept caught fire. 600 pigs tragically were burned to death. This was a huge financial hit for the family. Willie Picton would spend years trying to rebuild but would never accomplish the mission. Just the next year, Louise Picton was diagnosed with cancer. And just like her husband, the cancer spread rapidly. It came to the point where she could no longer care for herself. It was Willie who fed, diapered, bathed, and dressed her. The last couple weeks of her life, her condition had declined to the point of hospitalization. Willie would recall later that as she was being wheeled out on a stretcher en route to the hospital, she asked to have a look at the place just one more time. And so they sat her up on the stretcher and she looked all around. She would never return. Louise died at 67 on April 1st, 1979. And with that, it was time for the reading of the will. If Willie Picton thought he would be free of his domineering mother and her death, he'd be wrong. As it turned out, Louise had tied up Willie's inheritance. He would only be able to access the money when he turned 40, with one very important stipulation. He had to remain on the farm until then. Even after her death, Louise Picton controlled her son, Willie. She threw a measly $20,000 at him, a fraction of what his siblings inherited, and their inheritance came with no requirements. Willie was the one who took care of her, the one who worked his ass off to please her, and he's the one she stiffed in the end? Regardless, the three siblings had inherited the farm and the land. Cue the downward spiral. Linda didn't have much to do with the day-to-day -day operations. Instead, she just signed paperwork when she needed to, for tax purposes and things like that. Willie worked hard as he always had. And Dave moved a new woman named Vicky in, bullied his brother, and took over. While Dave had most of the control, he still hated farm work, so he continued on in his construction and dirt operation with his baby mama's family, and Willie ran the farm. Dave was taking dirt off the farm to sell at such a fast pace 
it turned even more into a swamp pit from hell, if you can imagine that. And as Dave hauled dirt out, Willie brought junk cars in. The place was looking more run down than it ever had. Willie tried to keep the farm side of things running, though. He frequently went to the local livestock auctions and shopped for his customers. He would buy, butcher, and package the meat himself, storing it in those freezers his parents had bought for their meat locker business until his customers came in to pick it up. But he was a tightwad just like his mother and bought the cheapest animals at the auction, seeking out the coals or sick and dying animals, many that were blind or covered with sores. He had developed such a reputation for this that one auction actually saved their sickest animals just for him, knowing he would be the only one who would have any interest in using these animals for meat. Not only were the animals sick and the meat quality questionable, Willie started experimenting with different ways to slaughter. If the animal was small enough, he'd slit its throat sometimes hanging it by its hind legs while it was still alive so the blood would drain quickly into a waiting bucket. He'd then piece it out with a handsaw. But that wasn't his favorite way to kill. And yes, he did have a favorite way. If the animal was too large for Willie to simply hang and slit its throat, he'd shoot it in the head with a nail gun. A nail gun like the kind you would use for framing a house or building a deck or fence. Not to be confused with a captive bolt stunner, which is what is actually used by legitimate farmers to slaughter their animals. According to Grandin.com, a captive bolt stunning gun kills the animal and reduces it instantly unconscious without causing pain. A captive bolt gun has a steel bolt that is powered by either compressed air or a blank cartridge. The steel bolts are sized for each animal to ensure that it will not feel any pain. This is not what Willie Picton used. Likely because nail guns were cheaper and he wasn't exactly concerned with doing things in a sanitary or humane way. He seemingly got pleasure out of shooting nails into the heads of animals. If ever there were a red flag, this is it. And you might think that after all that time studying how to butcher the animals, he'd at least be decent at that. But surprise, surprise, Willie was terrible at butchering, and he'd often have to take large hunks of meat to a skilled butcher to have it trimmed down into the cuts of meat you'd find in a grocery store. To dispose of the unwanted parts such as bones, guts, and skin, Willie would hop on one of Dave's tractors and dig huge holes, 30 to 40 feet deep. He'd then dump all the unusable waste in the holes until they were almost full, and then he'd fill it in. You probably wanted to know none of that. Neither did I. But hang tight, it's going to be important later. Farm work and construction weren't the only things happening on the Picton farm. As if things weren't strange enough, enter the Hells Angels. Yep, those. You see, Dave Picton had an obsession with the motorcycle club. He befriended quite a few local members and invited them to come hang on the farm. And Dave Picton always looking for a new way to score some cash, 
came up with a new business plan. It wasn't long before rumors were swirling that the Picton brothers were operating a chop shop with the bikers. Of course, it wasn't just talk. Cars, trucks, and other stolen items were routinely buried out on the Picton farm after they had been parted out for everything of value or an insurance claim had been paid. If Willie or Dave was feeling particularly lazy, they'd just park the vehicle and dump dirt right over top. Surprisingly, Dave was too busy to run the chop shop, so he had put Willie in charge. Willie always had a knack for fiddling with vehicles. He'd be able to spot what was valuable right away. Not to mention, he'd make a great fall guy for Dave if they ever got caught. But Willie was already working on the farm and driving. He didn't have time to run an illegal enterprise. But that didn't stop him, of course. He had a brilliant idea. He'd just hire teenage boys to help on the farm, freeing up his time to part out the cars. So he did. He hired a handful of them. And he let them live there on the farm. But he refused to pay them. If they asked for money, he'd just scare the living shit out of them and let them know he could get rid of anyone and then turn around and befriend them again. It was a vicious cycle. One of those boys recalled an incident with Willie to Stevie Cameron, stating, One day he told me he had a ham for me, and I should pick it up after my shift. Another kid told me not to take it. But at the end of my shift, I said, what about the ham you promised me? And Willie returned with a mass of material. It wasn't brains, but I don't know what it was. It was all stringy and not ham. And it wasn't frozen. Soon, the Hell's Angels that were out on the farm started bullying the teenage boys too, and further sending the boys on missions to steal cars. The boys did it. One, because they were intimidated and two, because they were getting paid by the bikers. And it wasn't in stringy mystery meat or whatever in the hell that was. Before too long, the son of a local politician was caught stealing, and the trail led straight back to the Picton farm. Police started watching and poking around. Two Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers showed up to investigate. Willie quite literally pointed out some of the stolen property to the Mounties. Meanwhile, Dave's girl Vicky could see that things were about to go to hell in a handbasket with a monogrammed bow, so she dipped out. In true Dave fashion, though, she was quickly replaced with a woman named Kathy. But nothing happened. There was no grand-scale investigation, no mass arrests, literally nothing happened. It's easy to be critical of the Mounties for their lack of action, and trust me, you'll have plenty of reason to be pissed later. But the criminal enterprise that the Picton farm had become was the least of their worries at the time. They had their hands full, because a killer was on the loose and children were being targeted. In a span of just nine months, 11 children were abducted, drugged, raped, and murdered. It was clear that whatever monster was lurking wasn't going to stop unless someone stopped him. According to GlobeAndMail.com, the bodies of three boys, 
and eight girls ranging in age between 19 and 18 had been found within a 90-kilometer radius of Vancouver from November of 1980 to July of 1981. The community was terrified. The victims' ages and gender varied. So did the way in which they were killed. Obviously, this was the work of a serial killer, but a killer who followed no typical pattern. It was impossible to predict who the next victim would be. Everyone locked their doors and mothers clung to their children. What was happening was absolutely horrific, and it was all happening so fast. According to globalnews.ca, on November 17, 1980, 12-year-old Christine Weller disappeared. Her body was found on Christmas Day. She had been stabbed and strangled. 13-year-old Colleen Dagnall was abducted on April 16, 1981. Her body was found five months later. She had been stabbed to death. Less than a week after Colleen's disappearance, on April 22, 15-year-old Darren Johnsrud disappeared from a Vancouver mall. Tragically, he had only been in the area for two days. His beaten body was found less than two weeks later. On May 19th, 16-year-old Sandra Wolfsteiner disappeared while she tried to hitch a ride from her boyfriend's home. She would later be found bludgeoned to death in a remote area 50 miles east of Vancouver. 13-year-old Ada Court vanished on her way to see a friend on June 21st, 1981. Her body was found two months later. On July 2nd, 9-year-old Simon Partington disappeared while riding his bike to a friend's home. His body was later found in a remote area in Richmond, B.C. He had been forced to drink beer in order to sedate him and then strangled. 14-year-old Judy Cosma was abducted on July 9th. Her body was found a little over two weeks later. It was discovered that she had been given liquor and drugs and stabbed 19 times. On July 23rd, Raymond King, who was 15, disappeared from a youth employment center. His body was later found in a remote campground. He had been brutally beaten to death. 14-year-old Sigrun Arn was a German student who was just visiting Canada. She would never make it back to her home country. She vanished just two days after Raymond on July 25th. Her body was found later, cause of death, skull fractures. She, too, had been beaten to death. Again, two days later, on July 27, 1981, Terry Lynn Carson, who was just 15 years old, was abducted, later found strangled to death in a remote area along the Fraser River. On July 30th, 17-year-old Louise Chartrand vanished. Her bludgeoned body was found buried near the Whistler, B.C. ski resort. There were so many victims in such a short time frame. The community was frantic for answers. What kind of monster could do something like this? The monster was revealed on August 12, 1981, when a man named Clifford Olson was arrested for attempting to abduct two female hitchhikers. Clifford Olson was a name police were all too familiar with. You see, 
he had a criminal record that would make a mob boss blush. At 41 years old, Olson had been arrested 94 times, had racked up 83 convictions, and at the time was facing 12 open charges. Oh yeah, and he had escaped from jail seven times. What in the hell was this guy doing on the street? When you take into account that half of his adult life had been spent behind bars, this douche was getting arrested more frequently than most people changed their drawers. A trial began on January 11, 1982. Initially, Olson pled not guilty to all charges, but that plea would be abruptly changed three days into the proceedings, and Clifford Olson pled guilty to 11 counts of first-degree murder. Did Olson have a change of heart? Maybe feel just a little bit of remorse? Absolutely not. Olson pled guilty and led the Mounties to the bodies of his victims for cold, hard cash. In a deal dubbed Cash for Bodies, the RCMP would pay the family of Clifford Olson, specifically his wife Joan, in exchange for the locations of victims' bodies who had not yet been located and details about the murders for those that had. A deal so unbelievable and sickening, there aren't words in the English language, so I'm going to read it straight from the court documents. This is an undertaking of an agreement between the RCMP and Clifford Robert Olson. The following will be paid by the RCMP to Mrs. Joan Olson for the following information. $10,000 cash for each body of missing persons, up to seven bodies. $30,000 for information of four bodies which we have already been recovered, which relate to the above seven other missing persons. This agreement should be as undertaken, shall be binding in law, as to not disclose this information in this agreement to the Canadian press. The following missing persons are covered in this agreement. Judy Cosma, Darren Johnson Rood, Raymond King, Simon Partington, Ada Court, Louise Chartrand, Christine Weller, Terry Lynn Carson, Colleen Dognall, and Sandra Wolfsteiner, and one unidentified female. That was Sigrun Arnd, the German student Taurus police weren't aware was missing. $10,000 will be paid to Mrs. Olson up to a total of the recovery of seven bodies. And as if all that wasn't disgusting enough, the Vancouver Sun reports that after the deal was struck, this human shitstain called his wife and said, Honey, you're gonna be rich. As you can imagine, Canada and the rest of the free world was outraged. But investigators defended the deal, saying it was the only way to ensure that Clifford Olson would never be free again. I don't like to Monday morning quarterback, but I'm calling bullshit on that one. Clifford Olson received 11 life sentences. He got cancer and died in prison in 2011 at the age of 71. 
Ada Quartz's sister Trudy spoke to cbc.ca after learning of Olson's death. She was emotional as she spoke and said, These are tears of happiness because justice is done for the children. Our justice system couldn't do it for them, but life has. He's gone now. I'm sure hell had a spot reserved for Clifford Olson. You can see why the RCMP had no time for the bullshit on the Picton farm. Between trying to catch a child killer and then fielding the outrage that came after the cash for bodies fiasco, petty crimes such as car theft and insurance fraud just weren't even on their radar. So Dave and Willie Picton continued right on with their criminal activities with the Hells Angels. And Dave continued to bully his brother relentlessly. Willie liked his privacy and nothing pissed in his grits more than people going downstairs and plundering around in his room. But Dave paraded the women he brought around the farm into Willie's basement bedroom like it was some kind of museum exhibit and said things like, don't believe my brother or hang around him. He's a futile short of a load. One particular instance is documented in Stevie Cameron's book. While Willie was still at work, Dave took his new fling Kathy and her friend Karen down into Willie's room. Karen recounted that they walked over a false floor to get into the basement. The false floor was there because the basement where Willie's room was flooded pretty frequently in the winter. Once the door to the room was open, she took a look around. There was a plain filthy mattress on the floor with a huge black stain on the center. She then noticed a horse's head hanging right there on the wall. It was Goldie. It was the horse that Willie had bred. It turned out she had suffered an injury to her leg, so severe she had to be put down. After her death, Willie had sawed her head off himself and taken it to a taxidermist to be stuffed. Would you look at that? Another red flag. On another wall, there were three coats of arms representing the Picton bloodline and a book of local history and the history of the Picton family. Just as Karen and Kathy were getting a good look at the disaster that was Willie's room, he appeared in the doorway and he was pissed. He spat in Kathy's face and growled to Dave, if she ever comes in this room again, I will kill her. Karen and Kathy were terrified. I mean, Willie always kind of creeped them out, and for good reason. Karen stated, he was living in the basement and had this wild dog. The dog would tear your limbs off. He was crazy and wild and Willie would feed him raw meat. I refused to eat any of the meat off the farm, even though we had been out there every day. She went on to say, Kathy was so scared of him and the meat there, and I had friends who said those guys, the Pictons, were making snuff films. And those were just a handful of reasons. There are far too many to list. In 1986, Dave's baby mama, Sandy, returned to the farm but not to rekindle a lost love. She returned to work, driving a gravel truck for Dave. Kathy, the new girlfriend, also worked for Dave, driving a dump truck. 
Both women worked from sun up till sundown, sometimes seven days a week. Kathy and Sandy both had children living with them on the farm. Kathy's daughters were still very young, and due to her crazy working hours, she needed childcare. So she hired a live in babysitter. All seemed to be going well with the babysitter, according to Karen, as she recalled in On the Farm. So well, in fact, that when Karen and her husband and Kathy and Dave went on a vacation all together, the babysitter came to help watch the children. But not long after that trip, the babysitter just up and vanished without a trace, without saying a word. Kathy and Dave called the woman's grown daughter, and they were informed that she hadn't heard from her mom. According again to Karen, the Pictons did absolutely nothing about it, writing the babysitter off as a drifter. They never called police, never called the daughter back as far as Karen knew, and just moved on like she never existed. Was there a reason they didn't press the issue? Dave Picton's babysitter wouldn't be the only woman to disappear. It wasn't long before women began to disappear at a cyclic rate from Vancouver's low track. But that, my friends, we'll have to wait until next week because we are out of time. Be sure to join me next week for part three of the Pick Farmer series. Stevie Cameron's book On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details absolutely every single aspect of this case. I highly recommend picking up a copy. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.